Chapter Three of Twentieth Century Inventions: A Forecast. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Esther. Twentieth Century Inventions: A Forecast by George Sutherland. Chapter Three: Storage of Power. The three principal forms of stored power which are now in sight above the horizon of the industrial outlook are the electric storage battery, compressed air, and calcium carbide. The first of these has come largely into use owing to the demand for a regulated and stored supply of electricity available for lighting purposes. Indeed, the storage battery has practically rendered safe the wide introduction of electric lighting because a number of cells, when once charged, are always available as a reserve in case of any failure in the power or in the generators at any central station, and also because, by means of the storage cells or accumulators, the amount of available electrical energy can be subdivided into different and subordinate circuits, thus obviating the necessity for the employment of currents of very high voltage and eluding the only imperfectly solved problem of dividing a current traversing a wire as conveniently as lighting gas is divided by taking small pipes off from the gas mains. Compressed air for the storage of power has hitherto been best appreciated in mining operations, one of the main reasons for this being that the liberated air itself, apart from the power which it conveyed and stored, has been so great a boon to the miner, working in ill-vented stops and drives. The cooling effect of the expansion, after close compression, are also very grateful to men laboring hard at very great depths, where the heat from the country rock would become, in the absence of such artificial refrigeration, almost overpowering. For underground railway traffic, exactly the same recommendations have, at one period during the fourth quarter of the nineteenth century, given an adventitious stimulus to the use of compressed air. Yet it is now undoubted that, even in deep mining, the engineer's best policy is to adopt different methods for the conveyance and storage of power on the one hand, and for the ventilation of the workings on the other. Few temptations are more illusory in the course of industrial progress than those presented by that class of inventions which aim at killing two birds with one stone. If one object be successfully accomplished, it almost invariably happens that the other is indifferently carried out. But the most frequent result is that both of them suffer in the attempt to adapt machinery to irreconcilable purposes. The electric rock drill is now winning its way into the mines which are ventilated with comparative ease as well as into those which are more difficult to supply with air. It is plain, therefore, that on its merits as a conveyor and storer of power, the electric current is preferable to compressed air. The heat that is generated and then dissipated in the compression of any gas for such a purpose represents a serious loss of power, and it is altogether an insufficient excuse to point to the compensation of coolness being secured from the expansion. Fans, driven by electric motors, already offer a better solution of the ventilation difficulty, and the advantages on this side are certain to increase rather than to diminish during the next few years. The electric rock drill, which can already hold its own with that driven by compressed air, is therefore bound to gain ground in the future. 
This is a type and indication of what will happen all along the industrial line, the electric current taking the place of the majority of other means adopted for the transmission of power. Even in workshops, where it is important to have a wide distribution of power, and each man must be able to turn on a supply of it to his bench at any moment, shafting is being displaced by electric cables for the conveyance of power to numerous small motors. The loss of power in this system has already been reduced to less than that which occurs in shafting, unless under the most favorable circumstances and in places where the works are necessarily distributed over a considerable area, the advantage is so pronounced that hardly any factories of that kind will be erected ten years hence without resort being had to electricity and small motors as the means of distributing the requisite supplies of power to the spots where they are needed. It was a significant fact that at the Paris Exposition of 1900 the electric system of distribution was adopted. In regards to compressed air, however, it seems practically certain that, notwithstanding its inferiority to electric storage of power, it is applicable to so many kinds of small and cheap installations that, on the whole, its area of usefulness, instead of being restricted, will be largely increased in the near future. There will be an advance all along the line and although electric storage will far outstrip compressed air for the purposes of the large manufacturer, the air reservoir will prove highly useful in isolated situations and particularly for agricultural work. For example, as an adjunct to the ordinary rural windmill for pumping water, it will prove much more handy and effective than the system at present in vogue of keeping large tanks on hand for the purpose of ensuring a supply of water during periods of calm weather. Regarding a tank of water elevated above the ground and filled from a well as representing so much stored energy, and also comparing this with an equal bulk of air compressed to about 300 pounds pressure to the square inch, it would be easy to show that, unless the water has been pumped from a very deep well, the power which its elevation indicates must be only a small fraction of that enclosed in the air reservoir. It will be one great point in favor of compressed air, as a form of stored energy for the special purposes of pumping, that by making a continuous small flow of air take the place of the water at the lowest level in the upward pipe, it is possible to cause it to do the pumping without the intervention of any motor. One means of effecting this may be simply indicated. The air under pressure is admitted from a very small air pipe, and the bubbles, as they rise, fill the hollow of an inverted iron cup, rising and falling on a bearing like a hinge. Above and beneath the chamber containing this cup are valves opening upwards, and similar to those of an ordinary force or suction pump. The cup must be weighted, with adjustable weights, so that it will not rise until quite full of air. When that point is reached, the stroke is completed, the air having driven upwards a quantity of water of equal bulk, with itself, and, as the cup falls again by its own weight, the vacuum caused by the air escaping upwards through the pipe is filled by an inrush of water through the lower valve. The function of the upper valve at that time is to keep the water in the pipe from falling when the pressure on the column is removed. The expansive power of the air enables it to do more lifting at the upper than at the lower level. 
so that a larger diameter of pipe can be used at the former place. Cheap motors working on the same principle, that is to say, through the upward escape of compressed air, gas or vapor filling a cup and operating it by its buoyancy, or turning a wheel in a similar manner, will doubtless be a feature in the machine work of the future. And for motors of this description, it is obvious that compressed air will be very useful as the form of power storage. Excepting under very special conditions, steam is not available for such a purpose, seeing that it condenses long before it has risen any material distance in a column of cold water. Quote, the present accumulator, remarked Professor Sylvanus P. Thompson in the year 1881, referring to the far storage batteries then in use, probably bears as much resemblance to the future accumulator as a glass bell jar used in chemical experiments for holding gas does to the gasometer of a city gas works, or James Watt's first model steam engine does to the engines of the Atlantic steamer. Unquote. When Farr, having in 1880 improved upon the storage battery of Plante, sent his four-cell battery from Paris to Glasgow, carrying in it stored electrical energy, it was found to contain power equal to close upon a million foot-pounds, which is about the work done by a horsepower, during the space of half an hour. The battery weighed very nearly seventy-five pounds. It nevertheless represented an immense forward step in the problem of compressing a given quantity of potential power into a small weight of accumulator. The progress made during less than twenty years to the end of the century may be estimated from the conditions laid down by the Automobile Club of Paris for the competitive tests of accumulators applicable to auto-car purposes in 1899. It was stipulated that five cells weighing in all 244 pounds, should give out 120 amperes hours of electric intensity, and that at the conclusion of this test there should remain a voltage of 1 to 7 volt per cell. Very great improvements in the construction of electric accumulators are to be looked for in the near future. Hitherto the average duration of the life of a storage cell has not been more than about two years and where impurities have been present in the sulfuric acid, or in the litharge, or minimum employed, the term of durability has still been further shortened. It must be remembered that while the principal chemical and electrical action in the cell is a circular one, that is to say, the plates and liquids get back to the original condition from which they started when beginning work in a given period, there is also a progressive minor action depending upon the impurities that may be present. Such a reagent, for instance, as nitric acid, has an extremely injurious effect upon the plates. During the first decade after Plante and Faure had made their original discoveries, the main drawback to the advancement of the electric accumulator for the storage of power owed its existence to the lack of precise knowledge among those placed in charge of storage batteries, as to the destructive effects of impurities in the cells. It is, however, now the rule that all acids and all samples of water used for the purpose must be carefully tested before adoption, and this practice in itself has greatly prolonged the average life of the accumulator cell. 
the era of the large electric accumulator of the kind foreshadowed by professor sylvanus p thompson has not yet arrived the simple reason being that electric power storage apart from the special purposes of the subdivision and transmission for lighting has not been tried on a large scale for the regulation and graduation of power it is exceedingly handy to be able to switch on a number of small accumulator cells for any particular purpose and of course the degree of control held in the hands of the engineer must depend largely on the smallness of each individual cell and the number which he has at his command this fact of itself tends to keep down the size of the storage cell which is most popular but when power storage by means of the electric accumulator really begins in earnest the cells will attain to what would at present be regarded as mammoth proportions and the special purpose aimed at in each instance of power installation will be the securing of continuity in the working of a machine depending upon some intermittent natural force windmills are especially marked out as the engines which will be used to put electrical energy into the accumulators from these latter again the power will be given out and conveyed to a distance continuously high ridges and eminences of all kinds will in the future be selected as the sites of wind power and accumulator plants in the eighteenth century when the corn from the wheat field required to be ground into flour by the agency of wind power it was customary to build the mill on top of some high hill and to cart all the material laboriously to the eminence in the installations of the future the power will be brought to the material rather than the material to the power from the ranges or mountain peaks and also from smaller hills will radiate electrical power nerves branching into the network on the plains and supplying power for almost every purpose to which man applies physical force or electrochemical energy the gas engine during the twentieth century will vigorously dispute the field against electrical storage and its success in the struggle so far as regards its own particular province will be enhanced owing to the fact that in some respects it will be able to command the services of electricity as its handmaid gas engines are already very largely used as the actuators of electric lighting machinery but in the developments which are now foreshadowed by the advent of acetylene gas the relation will be reversed in other words the gas engine will owe its supply of cheap fuel to the electric current derived at small expense from natural sources of power calcium carbide by means of which acetylene gas is obtained as a product from water becomes in this view stored power the marvelously cheap water gas which is made through a jet of steam impinging upon incandescent carbons or upon other suitable glowing hot materials will no doubt for a long time command the market after the date at which coal gas for the generation of power has been partially superseded but it seems exceedingly probable that a compromise will ultimately be effected between the methods adopted for making water gas and calcium carbide respectively the electric current being employed to keep the carbons incandescent when power is to be sold in concrete form it will be made up as calcium carbide so that it can be conveyed to any place where it is required without the assistance of either pipes or wires 
but when the laying of the latter is practicable, as it will be in the majority of instances, the gas for an engine will be obtained without the need for forcing lime to combine with carbon, as in calcium carbide. Petroleum oil is estimated to supply power at just one-third the price of acetylene gas made with calcium carbide at a price of 20 pounds per ton. This calculation was drawn up before the occurrence of the material rise in the price of petrol in the last year of the 19th century, while concurrently the price of calcium carbide was falling. A similar process will, on the average, be maintained throughout each decade, and as larger plants with cheaper natural sources of energy are brought into requisition, the cost of power, as obtained from oil and from acetylene gas, will more and more closely approximate, until in course of time they will be about equal, after which, no doubt, the relative positions will be reversed, although not perhaps in the same ratio. Time is all on the side of the agent, which depends for its cheapness of production on the utilization of any natural source of power which is free of all costs, save interest, wear and tear, and supervision. Even the steam engine itself is not exempt from the operation of the general law placing the growing advantage on the side of power that is obtainable gratis. One cubic inch of water converted into steam and at boiling point will raise a ton weight to the height of one foot, and the quantity of coal of good quality needed for the transformation of the water is very small. One pound of good coal will evaporate nine pounds of water, equal to about 250 cubic inches, this doing 250 foot-tons of work. But Niagara performs the same amount of work at infinitely less cost. However small any quantity may be, its ratio to nothing is infinity. It has been the custom during the 19th century to institute comparisons between the marvelous economy of steam power and the expensive wastefulness of human muscular effort. For instance, the full day's work of an eastern porter, specially trained to carry heavy weights, will generally amount to the removal of a load of from three to five hundred weight for a distance of one mile. But such a laborer, in the course of a long day, has only expended as much power as would be stored up in about five ounces of coal. Still the fact remains that one of the greatest problems of the future is that which concerns the reduction in the cost of power. Hundreds of millions of the human race pass lives of a kind of dull monotonous toil which develops only the muscular at the expense of the higher faculties of the body. They are almost entirely cut off from social intercourse with their fellow men, and they sink prematurely into decrepitude simply by reason of the lack of a cheap and abundant supply of mechanical power, ready at hand wherever it is wanted." Scores of enterprises of great pith and moment in the industrial advancement of the world have to be abandoned by reason of the same lack. In mining, in agriculture, in transport, and in manufacture, the thing that is needful to convert the human machine into a more or less intelligent brain worker is cheaper power. All the technical education in the world will not avail to raise the laborer in the intellectual scale if his daily work be only such as a horse or an engine might perform. The transmission of power through the medium of the electric current 
will naturally attain its first great development in the neighborhoods of large waterfalls such as Niagara. When the manufacturers within a short radius of the source of power in each case have begun to fully reap the benefit due to cheap power, competition will assert itself in many different ways. The values of real property will rise, the population will tend to become congested within the localities served. It will be found, however, that facilities for shipment will to a large extent perpetuate the advantage at present held by manufactories situated on ports and harbours, and this, of course, will apply with peculiar force to the cases of articles of considerable bulk. Where a very great deal of power is needed for the making of an article or material of comparatively small weight and bulk proportioned to its value, such, for instance, as calcium carbide or aluminum, the immediate vicinity of the source of natural power will offer superlative inducements. But an immense number of things lie between the domains of these two classes, and for the economical manufacture of these, it is imperative that both cheap power and low wharfage rates should be obtainable. An increasingly intense demand must thus spring up for systems of long-distance transmission, and very high voltage will be adopted as the means of diminishing the loss of power due to leakage from the cables. Similarly, the polyphase system, which is eminently adapted to installations of the nature indicated, must demand increasing attention. Taking a concrete example, mention may be made of the effects to be expected from the proposed scheme for diverting some of the headwaters of the Tay and its lakes from the eastern to the western shores of Scotland, and establishing at Loch Laven, the western inlet, not the inland lake of that name, a seaport town devoted to manufacturing purposes requiring very cheap supplies of power. It is obvious that the owners of mills in and around Glasgow, and only forty or fifty miles distant, will make the most strenuous exertions to enable them to secure a similar advantage. It is already claimed that, with the use of currents of high voltage for carrying the power, and step-down transformers converting these into a suitable medium for the driving of machinery, a fairly economical transmission can be assured along a distance of a hundred miles. It therefore seems plain that the natural forces derived from such sources as waterfalls can safely be reckoned upon as friends rather than as foes of the vested interests of all the great cities of the United Kingdom. The possibilities of long-distance transmission are greatly enhanced by the very recent discovery that a cable carrying a current of high voltage can be most effectually insulated by encasing it in the midst of a tube filled with wet sawdust and kept at a low temperature, preferably at the freezing point of water. Wireless transmission of a small amount of power has been proved to be experimentally possible. In the rarefied atmosphere, at a height of five or ten miles from the Earth's surface, electric discharges of very high voltage are conveyed without any other conducting medium than that of the air. By sending up balloons, carrying suspended wires, the positions of dispatch and of receipt can be so elevated that the resistance of the atmosphere can be almost indefinitely diminished. In this way, small motors have been worked 
by discharges generated at considerable distances, and absolutely without the existence of any connection by metallic conductors. Possibilities of the exportation of power from suitable stations, such as the neighborhoods of waterfalls, and its transmission for distances of hundreds or even thousands of miles have been spoken of in relation to the industrial prospects of the twentieth century. Comparing any such hypothetical system with that of sending power along good metallic conductors, there is at once apparent a very serious objection in the needless dispersion of energy throughout the space in every direction. If a power generator, by wireless transmission, without any metallic connection, can work one motor at a distance of, say, a thousand miles, then it can also operate millions of similar possible motors situated at the same distance, and by far the greater part of its electromotive force must be wasted in upward dispersion. The analogy of the wireless transmitter of intelligence may be misleading if applied to the question of power. The practicability of wireless telegraphy depends upon the marvelous susceptibility of the coerer, which enables it to respond to an impulse almost infinitesimally small, certainly very much smaller than that dispatched by the generator from the receiving station. From this it follows, as already stated, that the analogy of apparatus designed merely for the dispatch of intelligence by signaling cannot safely be applied to the case of the transmission of energy. Making all due allowances for the prospects of advance in minimizing the resistance of the atmosphere, it must nevertheless be remembered that any wireless system will be called upon to compete with improved means of conveying the electric current along metallic circuits. Electrical science, moreover, is only at the commencement of its work in economizing the cost of power cables. The invention by which one wire can be used to convey the return current of two cables very much larger in sectional area is only one instance in point. The two major cables carry currents running in opposite directions, and as these currents are both caused to return along the third and smaller wire, their electromotive forces balancing one another with the result that the return wire needs only to carry a small difference current. The return wire, in fact, is analogous to the banking clearinghouse which deals with balances only, and which therefore can sometimes adjust business to the value of many millions with payments of only a few thousands. Later on it may fairly be expected that duplicate and quadruplicate telegraphy will find its counterpart in systems by which different series of electrical impulses of high voltage will run along a wire, the one alternating with the other, and each series filling up the gaps left between the others. End of chapter 3